little kind of sense units that we've read this morning. And uh, I've, I've, I've put them together because together, as I read them some months ago, it just felt that there were two things about the cost of commitment that were going on in these passages. That's what I've given as a heading for this uh, passage today. But it is very much a game of two halves. Any of you that uh, are interested in football will know that the the first weekend in January is a fantastic footballing weekend because the FA Cup third round opens up a competition so that all the little clubs have got half a chance of, of, of beating a big club. I believe there's some dodgy team turning up in Yeovil today. Manchester United, have you heard of them? But, but big clubs have to, to compete against some of the, the lesser clubs. And there's always stories of, of, of kind of little clubs beating big clubs. Yesterday afternoon, Blythe Spartans, who are in the seventh league, they're, they're, they're a non-professional team. They're not in the first division or the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth. They are seven leagues down. They play Birmingham City, a team of great history currently in the second league, but way, way above them. Professional footballers getting paid a fortune. Blythe Spartans hosted Birmingham City yesterday afternoon. And at half-time, Blythe Spartans were winning 2-0. Their supporters must have been in seventh heaven. That was the game of the first half. Second half came, and I assume the Birmingham manager gave his boys a rocket because they came out and beat them 3-2. But hey, it was a game of two halves. And I I kind of feel that that's what we've got this morning in this passage. same, Same scripture, but kind of contrasting... Uh, happenings. What we've got in verses 1 to 5 is uh, the the continuation of Paul's second missionary journey. That's what we seem to refer to it as. He's he's been out and he's shared the gospel once, come back and spent some time in Antioch and and, and been built built up uh, with, with the believers. And then he's gone out again. And they come to a couple of places that they've already been to, Derby or Derby and Lystra. And there's a focus in verses 1 to 5 on a very strange little incident. And then verses 6 to 10 goes into some different territory, not quite as they might have expected. So here in in Acts chapter 16, we meet a guy called Timothy. He was a a fairly recent convert. We learn that he was well regarded. We learn, too, that his mother was a Jewess and a believer. He was of mixed parentage. His mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek, a Gentile. He's someone we become familiar with later on in the New Testament because Paul writes letters to him to encourage him as a a young leader. Verse 3, though, comes as a bit of a shock. 
Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. Now, quite apart from that making your eyes water, that kind of shock, it was a shock because it seems to contradict what's gone on up to this point. I'll just give you a very quick recap. But basically, Paul brought up a Jew, would have been circumcised, brought up in in the Jewish tradition, met with Jesus on the road to Damascus and realised that the law that was given to the Jews was not any longer needed to bring relationship with God. But Jesus had come and had done it all and had fulfilled the law. And so Paul, having been kind of arch enemy of of the Christians, became this incredible evangelist, this, this, this passionate man for Jesus. And he realized that actually, no, you do not have to follow the Jewish law in order to be saved, even though many of his fellow Jews said, well, okay, I'll I'll get the Jesus uh, man, but actually you've still got to do this, you've still got to eat this way, you've still got to be circumcised, you've still got to do all the law, plus a bit more. And Paul had to really step out of his comfort zone and say, no, it doesn't have to be like that. If you look at Galatians chapter, chapter 6, which um, is actually dated a little bit before uh, the Acts of the Apostles, even though it comes later in our Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, sorry. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What's he talking about? Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith. In chapter 15 of the book of Acts, there's a big discussion takes place in Jerusalem. And they come to the conclusion that actually Gentiles are allowed to be Christian. That's okay. And that, to us, doesn't seem like a big old deal, but it was a big deal to cross those cultural boundaries. And so the Gentiles did not have to follow the law of Moses. They did not have to be circumcised. They did not have to do all the stuff that was set out in the the law. There was a few things that that they concluded at the Council of Jerusalem were maybe just to try and build bridges between the two cultures. Please do that. Please do that. Don't don't eat um, food that's been offered to idols. That's not going to help some of your brothers and sisters. But Peter in verse 11 of chapter 15, makes it very clear, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just 
as they are. So there was a big old ding-dong about cultural expectations and, and, and being uh, kind of subject to the slavery, if you like, of the Jewish law. And Paul was saying, nah, you don't have to do that. It's not necessary. You're free from all of that. You don't have to do it. You just have to believe in Jesus and give your life to him. And then he meets this guy, Timothy, and says, hey, it's great to see you, pal. By the way, if you want to come with me, <whistles> circumcision is what you need to do. And it's like, what? Why? Why would he kind of argue all of that and then seemingly turn it on his head and say, well, nah, you need to do that. Was he contradicting himself? Some people have been really perplexed by this and, and seem to feel that, that Paul is really contradicting himself. Some people would, would kind of argue, well, here's just one of those contradictions in Scripture. But I would say to you, no. I don't think there's a contradiction here at all, but there is a cost of commitment. I don't know who's more costly for, to be fair, Timothy or Paul. Painful for Timothy. But for Paul, he put his neck on the line, and then he seems to be going back on it. Why has he done it? Well, it's, it's because he wants Timothy to be received by the Jews who haven't yet received Jesus. So that they would accept him as a Jew speaking for Jesus. Seems that the Greeks weren't overly bothered about circumcision, but the Jews, that was a big old deal to them. Not wishing to be too fine a point on, put too fine a point on it, toilets were communal in those days, so it became quite obvious who had been circumcised and who hadn't. And Paul wanted Timothy to be received by the Jews, as well as by the Greeks. If we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, it kind of expresses Paul's view quite helpfully in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. You might want to keep a finger in, in, in the Acts bit and another finger uh, in 1 Corinthians 9. Anybody got a pew Bible got that uh, page? 1150. Just take a look at 1 Corinthians 9. And verse 19 and a few verses following. Paul is, is talking about his rights. And then he says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew. To win the Jews... To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those 
not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. What is paramount is the good news of Jesus. That's the important thing. Giving every kind of person the opportunity to hear it and removing anything that might be a stumbling block where that's possible. So as we come to the end of the first half, what does that say to us? It's saying that we should become like the culture around us. I think we've got to be very careful with that. Because Paul is also very clear. Romans chapter 12. A bit of flicking around in, in your Bibles today. If you want to go to Romans chapter 12, that would be just great. A little bit, it's the next book after Acts, if you're not too sure. Romans chapter 12, give us a page number if you can. One, 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 three, nine. Romans chapter 12, Paul says this to the church at Rome, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I just asked the question, should we just become like the culture around us? Here's the answer. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing and perfect will we must live lives that honour God we mustn't just absorb everything that's in our culture so that we become homogenous and like the culture that's around us. But we also need to be able to reach our It's a phrase that gets used. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. See, our Christian culture can become so impenetrable that people come in and they just don't get what's going on. And actually, the majority of the world don't even want to come in the doors of a church building because they don't like what they see and hear. And they certainly don't get why I would turn up to church on a Sunday morning. We've got to go out and live for Jesus amongst the people. Our traditions can get in the way. I don't think we are a particularly traditional church here at Fivehead. But we still have traditions and ways of doing things and ways of of operating that are kind of comfortable, that are kind of what, what you kind of expect of church. Are we prepared to do what it takes to share the gospel? Messy church is a great example 
of being completely kind of outside the box, if you like, in a way of sharing the gospel. Doesn't look like church, but it is church. It's a place where God is, is, is honoured, where his good news is, is presented. where his name is worshipped. But with lots of paint and sparkly stuff and mud and goo and goodness knows what, as people make stuff and sit and have food together. That is church. I know there would be people that would say, well, the only point of messy church is so we can get people into a proper church. Messy church is proper church. If those people come to a living relationship with the Lord Jesus by meeting at messy church, they never need to go to a different church, a proper church. We need to be thinking about how we do church. See, messy church is church, Jim, but not as we know it. I had to get a little Star Trek thing in there, didn't I? I don't wear a dog collar. Why do I not wear a dog collar? I'm a reverend, I'm ordained, all of that kind of stuff. I think it's largely because I, I'm concerned it con- conveys a certain image of the church as something that's out of church and institutionalised. That's a personal decision that I've generally taken. Is it wrong to wear a dog collar? Absolutely not. Would I wear a dog collar? Absolutely. Have I worn a dog collar? Yes. Where it helps somebody to to, to meet with the Lord Jesus, where it it doesn't kind of become a barrier. Absolutely. But I think our society in general is a little bit dismissive of the dog collar wearing thing. And we need to get beyond that. My children would die every time I wore a dog collar, just by the way. But uh, that wouldn't stop me if that was what I needed to do. And if that would help in certain situations that you're aware of, that maybe I need to be involved with, then I'll wear a dog collar. But uh, I guess that's doing the all things to all people, isn't it? It's helping people where they're at. We need to remember, as we come to a new year, that, that thing that William Temple once said, and I paraphrase it, but church is unique because it exists primarily for its non-members, for those outside. The church exists for others. What's the cost of our commitment? Well, maybe we do need to do certain things that don't meet our preferences. (coughs) Probably won't mean circumcision, you'll be glad to hear. But maybe there are other things that are uncomfortable. But for the sake of the gospel, 
we need to do. Running out of time. So let's get into the second half, which will probably be a shorter half than the first half. Just an aside. That as they travelled, verse 4, from town to town, told people what they needed to do, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and so they grew. It's kind of another mile point in the book of Acts. Several times you see that, that the church grew in faith and grew in numbers. Second half, though, in verses 6 through 10, we see a cost of commitment. I guess more as a group of, of apostles, of, of missionaries, they move into new territories. See, they had their idea of where to go. Keith, I wonder if you could put the, the, um, the slide up. Now, have we got a little pointy thing on that, on that um, remote control? Let's have a quick look. I'm sure Steve was saying, well, yay, we've got a pointy thing. Uh, let's have a quick look. Pointer. Hey, how about that? I don't know how it works, mine, but there we go. Over there. No? Oh, blimey. Right, let's leave that alone, shall we? Sorry. Right, okay, well, anyway, just, just we've got the equator now, <laughs> and uh, you can see, kind of top, top right, Derby and Lystra, just as you kind of go up the coast, over the top, and then there's Derby and Lystra. That's where they meet Timothy. Then they begin to make this journey. They think they're going to go up into Bithynia and Pontus. But the Holy Spirit says to them, nah, you're not going there. So they think, actually, okay, we'll go down into Galatia and into Asia. It's interesting. I'd always thought of um, Asia as as our understanding of Asia. But in, in the Acts of the Apostles, Asia is that bit around Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira. But again, that, that, there was a major route from, from um, Lystra going down towards Ephesus and Colossae. Seemed like the most obvious place for them to go to spread the gospel of Jesus. But God said no. Twice he said no. You don't go that way. You go this way. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit acted in those cases. Maybe it was an illness that stopped them in their tracks. They were just about to go and then they all got sick. Maybe it was physical opposition. They started going towards a town and they met a bunch of people that said, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't going here. Maybe it was something within them as they were praying and they just got a strong sense. I don't think this is right. I don't think this is right. What do you think? Maybe there was somebody gave a prophetic word, stuck their neck out and said, actually, I believe the Lord is saying to us, we should not go there. See, God speaks in all sorts of ways. but he made sure that they didn't go in the obvious directions. And then comes a vision. Verses um, 
9 and 10. Paul has a vision which seems pretty clear and he needs to share it with the others that they need to go into Macedonia up to the north west. And guess what? As they hit Macedonia, so begins the journey of the gospel into what we now call Europe. See, God had better ideas than Paul and his pals as to what was the next thing on the agenda. For them, it kind of made sense to do one thing. But they were attentive to God. God guided them. And God will guide us. But we need to be attentive. Must have been confusing. I mean, it's not exactly a kind of a straight route that they take, is it? Even looking at that, it's kind of all over the shop. Not an easy route to take 2,000 years ago. But they were attentive to God. And they trusted one another to share in that journey. And so the gospel made it to a new frontier. So what about us? How attentive are we to God? Do we manage it on a Sunday morning, perhaps? Do we manage it on New Year's Day, because it's a new year, boom, let's do it. Are we walking? with God as we shop as we go to the office as we meet a friend or a neighbour or a family member are we submitting ourselves and, and soaking ourselves in what God would say to us so that maybe the obvious route is not the route to take Are we prepared to lay down our preferences and our wants and say, God, what is your heart? What are your eyes on this situation? Are we prepared to take a risk that maybe it wouldn't be going down the obvious route but actually going a different way? Or maybe being patient? Because actually, you know, Peter... Eventually the gospel went up into Mysia through Peter. God knew the right time. And Paul had to rely on that. Of course there's a danger that we can over-spiritualise everything and follow our own agenda and, and make it sound like a spiritual thing. Or we can even justify doing nothing because the Lord hasn't told me to do it. Sometimes we have to be practical and get on with it. But walking with God and trusting that actually, if we're about to make a great howling gaff, that, that we'll be attentive to God. For him to say, stop, think, talk to somebody before you go into that. Where is our heart as we begin 2015? 
Is it full out for God like these folks? Is it motivated by the good news of Jesus? Or is it motivated by our own agendas and soapboxes? It is costly to walk with Jesus. But it is so, so right. Let's learn from these folk who've who've taken risks, who've been attentive to God, and who've looked to him for the future.